Thank you so much for listening to True Crime Broads. We would also love to see you on our social media. Our two main platforms are Instagram and Facebook under True Crime Broads. But we also have a presence on YouTube, TikTok, and Twitter. And also, if you listen to our podcast and enjoy it, please feel free to leave us a five-star rating on Spotify and Apple. And also, there's an option on Apple to leave a review as well. Thank you for listening to True Crime Broads. Welcome to True Crime Broads. This is Crystal. And Renee. And today we have a fantastic guest. We have a DNA expert on, and she is not just any DNA expert. She is top of her field. We have the wonderful Francine Bardol on today, and we're so lucky that Cheryl McCollum said to us, you've got to have her on your show. She because, was right. Man, we looked her up and... And, and Francine was gracious and accepted our invite to be on True Crime Broads. So her bio is so long that we literally would have to do a whole separate episode to tell you about her background. So we're going to put that in the show notes. But just hitting the highlights, she's been doing this for over 25 years. She works hand-in-hand with the investigators. She has crime scene investigation experience, and she's amazing with DNA. She has her own method called the Bardol Method of extracting DNA, and we're going to let her tell you more about it. So thank you for joining us on True Crime Broads. True Crime Broads with Crystal Ooh. and Renee. I step on my neck, let it shine, let it shine, yeah. She gon' hit my line, I decline, I decline, yeah. Shall I be the best, I'm the fine, I'm the fine, yeah. Welcome back to True Crime Broads. We're really excited to bring you a fantastic guest today. We are so excited to have Francine Bardot on. She um, is, we had her on to talk about her expertise in DNA, but she has a really lengthy bio. Uh, welcome, Francine. We're so excited you're here. Tell us all about you. <laughs> well, uh, you're welcome. I'm glad to be here and to share some information um, with you. Um, a little bit about me. I've been working in the criminal justice arena for a very long time, um, probably 30, 35 years. Um, I've spent the last probably 20 years um, becoming learned in crime scene investigation uh, while working with law enforcement and becoming a forensic specialist and um, expert with uh, DNA uh, extraction from items of evidence. Um, I have worked with both defendants and I uh, have worked with victims. And so I have a good feel for pretty much both. And um, I am, uh, I own my own business now. I've retired and I opened my own business so that I could work cold cases specifically because uh, I really enjoy the challenge and I love doing it. And I believe that when you get to my point in life, you should do what you love doing and the, what you have a passion for. And this is my passion. Yes. That's awesome. Well, can you tell us about the Bardoli method? Because that's amazing. I was reading about that. I've heard you talk about it on shows. Could you tell our sure. listeners about that? You bet. Um, not a lot of uh, law enforcement agencies know about it uh, because I... Yeah, a, a lot do, but there are some that don't. Um, I am the inventor of the Bardol method. It uh, was not dubbed necessarily that name by me, but um, more um, as it got discussed, uh, that's the best way they could. I really wanted Tesla, you know, <laughs> something like but I got I got Bardol method. So anyway, um, as I was working with law enforcement 
and working crime scenes. Um, and a lot of law enforcement agencies find items of evidence that they can't get DNA from or they send them in to the lab to get DNA and the items are so small that DNA cannot um, be collected from them. And if there is any, it's not enough to really make an ID or be of benefit. And so I, this method has come up uh, with and has, you know, being able to, according, it's been, I, I don't know the other, any other methods that are peer reviewed, but this one is peer reviewed by the Journal of Science and Justice, which is the go-to for forensic. And it was peer reviewed as getting 26% more DNA off of metal. So um, that, that was really exciting, which can lead to a lot of things. So as I was um, experimenting with my method, I've been getting DNA off of jewelry, um, wow. zip ties, you know, handguns, components from handguns and casings and so many things. And um, it's, I've gotten very excellent results on that. I mean, to the point where a lot of labs are kind of, you know, amazed by it. It is uh, a protected method, so I don't share it with um, how, how it works or anything with anyone because it's important to me to keep my name good. <laughs> and yeah. sometimes people take something and they might do some little tweaks on it or changes and they might not get really good results. And then they'll say, well, we use the Bardot method. Yeah. So I'm not going to do that. Um, and so, yeah. So what I did is I, I remember thinking, I kept sending in um, shell casings into our state lab and, you know, this is what law enforcement does. I mean, state labs are, you know, do the best they can with what they have. And, um, we keep getting the same thing back. Um, I really can't recall in the years I was with law enforcement that I got any DNA from uh, shell casings. Uh, jewelry, I'd love to, but uh, that was always given back to the family immediately because they never felt they could get DNA from it. Wow. So um, I just thought, what's the, what, what's the definition of insanity? And that's, you keep doing the same thing over and over, expecting right. different results. And, you know, after, you know, uh, 20 years of doing this, I thought, no, this isn't working. Yeah. So uh, I came up with a way of getting a DNA of small items of evidence, things that cannot be swabbed or, or cut at all. In fact, Fort Lauderdale solved the case using my method uh, when the, where um, the suspect grabbed the victim's necklace and we were able to get stuff off the necklace. And that's why I say um, a lot of law enforcement gives the jewelry back to the family because they don't think they, they give it immediately back and personal as personal belongings. And um, if you if you look at the defense wounds on someone and there could have been grabbing of the jewelry or touching the jewelry, then certainly that would be something you'd want to keep. So my specialty is touch DNA. And so what I do with the Bardot method and the other method I use, which is called the MVAC, it all is about touch DNA. And that's that's a very, very small amount of DNA, correct? Touch DNA? Yeah, well, it can be, but but I'm telling you, you can have small amounts. See, when I when I started uh, with um, a crime scene investigation, if this was in about uh, I believe it was the year 2000, uh, and you had to have a sample this of blood the size of a quarter to get a DNA profile. Hmm. Now, from that time to this time, right now, 2023. The amount is so tiny, it's less than a pinhead. Wow. So oh. things have gotten so much better when it comes to DNA. 
and uh, you know, being able to get better results. And, and also um, one thing about uh, a lot of cases that are cold is they've had testing done and there's too many mixtures. That means too many people attached. So we have a lot of different people's DNA on there mm -hmm. and anything over two mixtures was you, you'd get an inconclusive or you couldn't use it because it was, you know, too many. Well, since that time, um, I'd say it's probably been in the last it's come out, a lot of labs got it first, but that's how it works. And then what they wait to see how it works. And then other people, other labs get it, but they have now a software that can unmix mixtures. So anything over two mixtures you can work with and it's getting better because there are other um, types of um, software and um, technologies that can unmix uh, mixtures at a higher percentage now. And so it, it just keeps getting better with DNA. It just, it does. And, and you know, um, I, I think that if, if law enforcement could look at some of their cold cases and see, you know, what the results were, they have to know from the time that that first, you know, DNA testing was done, it has changed so much that, that you can retest, you can do things again, especially with the new technologies and like what I have and, and, other, and other labs have as well, that you can get, still get results and i have i have done cases where i've had to redo and i've gotten good dna so i'm just i'm hoping law enforcement will readdress some of those cases that uh, have those mixtures uh, because now things have changed immensely wow that's amazing um you know we primarily cover the missy beavers case and that dna is now over seven years old um yes. and they said it was a mixed and a partial sample um, what do you think about that? I mean, I know we're totally speculating on what they have, but based on, I mean, that's all we have to go on is mixed and partial. Right. Is that well, something that could be usable at some point? Absolutely. Are you kidding? I have done, okay. I have done cases that here's, well, here's what labs typically do. Now, whatever the item is that was used, I know she was bludgeoned in the head, in the chest, and I have looked at enough, um, uh, footage and stuff on this case to know that you can see that the individual is carrying what appears to be a hammer or something similar mm -hmm. to that. Mm -hmm. So when you look at when you look at that and you and you think about what else was used, what else was touched, you know anything like that. Back then, you would get mixtures. DNA testing has come so far since that time it's come so far it would be well for law enforcement to um to work this case um with a a, a lab or I'll, I'll i'll go out there and i and i i work with also um not only my own business but i work with the cold case foundation and it is an excellent um a foundation that is nonprofit and helps doesn't charge money to assist families and law enforcement in solving cases. And they have over a hundred forensic experts in all areas throughout the United States. And, you know, even reaching out and getting a team going that can help, you know, solve a case and, and uh, analyze it. In fact, one of the guys on that foundation is, um, he is the um, chairman is uh, Greg Cooper. And he was uh, a partner with John Douglas with the FBI who started the profiling unit. And he, they're, they're both profilers and they're both uh, with the Cold Case Foundation. So you have top of the line. And I would suggest that as well because there can be other things. I mean, like um, 
in looking at some of the, the footage, for example, if you want to do profiling, and I'm not a profiler, i got to tell you that, but um, I was watching how this individual walks, and and I, I, I'm old, I, I, you know, grew up during the Vietnam era, and I had a lot of friends, and there were some in the Navy, and, and my dad was in the Navy, and that duck walk um, was, as I was looking, the first thing that came into my mind was, that's Navy, that person has to have military of some sort, because they used to walk that way, and I, and if you're on a ship for very long, that's how you position your feet to balance yourself while the ship is going. Mm. And I thought, I, you know, I, I know that we don't see a lot of that now, but they do, they also do duck walk exercises in the military. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I'm just saying that that is just not unique to a, a specific individual or due to a, uh, an injury or something. It could be this person was military, mm-hmm. you know, at one point in time. We've heard and, that a few times. Yeah, that's interesting. Oh, have yeah, mm-hmm. just oh, not, yeah. not from the feet, but just different other just things. Just different, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Like some yeah, because, but I just remember when I worked at, uh, when I used, I used to work at a, a Salt Lake County old Metro jail years ago, and uh, we would get military people in there every now and then that, you know, had, had a little too much to drink or whatever. <laughs> and uh, I used to keep, I used to keep tabs on what, which, which uh, branch of the military, you know, drinks the most that comes in, how, who has more, I'm not going to tell you who, but I, <laughs> I have no I, suspicions. I, I, <laughs> I did keep, keep tabs on, I, I would see, I knew when somebody came in walking that way that they were Navy. I knew they were. <laughs> and of course, this has been years ago. This was in the 90s. But um, that's something that should be taken into consideration. Um, another thing that I noticed was, um, I believe there might have been the opinion that they were very familiar with the church. And I don't know how very familiar they were, but I noticed when on their video, and this is online, so anybody can see this, um, they open a door and it's a Dutch door. Mm-hmm. And a Dutch door is a door that is cut in half and you can open the bottom and or the top. And they see, if you'll see, they kind of, they kind of go back like, oh, wow, you know, what's yeah. this? Yeah. And, and so I, I would think of somebody who, I don't know how large that church was, but if they were somebody that was really familiar with it, they certainly would have known that. Right, right. And most kids, those Sunday school rooms, most of them do have that because you can open the top to check your kids out mm-hmm. without them running out, you know, under your legs. So, right. yeah, you're right. They, You would think they would know that if they knew the church, they would understand those, oh, absolutely. those Sunday school rooms. Good point. And, and also going door to door to door and looking, um, I'm thinking, well, certainly wouldn't you know which were the larger rooms where somebody would be? you know, doing mm-hmm. extra, you know, the physical fitness stuff. Certainly you would, you would probably knew that. Yeah. We agree with you. Definitely. It seems and like. I know that, I know that the, the father, I think it was a father-in-law, Randy, uh-huh. um, you know, he could have very well been in the Navy and that's why he walks like a duck, you know? So I don't know if anybody ever checked that out. Oh, we, we don't know, but we can certainly. You know, that would be interesting, though, you know, because it kind of takes because there's a lot of there is a lot of um, uh, emphasis put on the duck walk. Right. Yeah, that's true. And there's been a lot of speculation, too. Is this a woman wearing men's shoes that's messing up the way she walks? You know, um, there's been some people are seeing a feminine sway in the way this person walks. So, yeah, it's it's been a big mystery for the last seven years and three months, I guess. Right. 
I've yeah. mentioned it and a couple of times. And of all the gear they had, all the police gear they had. Yeah. They had quite a bit. They they have a bulletproof vest on. You can it looks like it because they, you know, when you have a bulletproof vest on it, it makes you look really round and big on the top. Yeah. Unless uh. unless, it, unless this was a woman, it was very round and big, but it didn't feel like it because I looked at the arms. And um, I think if you were to have full dress and you had um, the helmet, you had all this other stuff. I, I don't think, you know, number one, when I get my gear and I'd have to get anything and I wasn't, I was not an, a police officer. I was a civilian working my, in the, with law enforcement, but I had to have boots and I had to get jackets and I had to get things that identify me as crime scene. Mm. Well, not that I was a crime scene, but it had to identify me. Yeah. <laughs> I would be there. That's who I am. And um, what was interesting is you you had to identify identify with what law enforcement department you're with, you know who you're getting this because they're the ones that pay for it. Mm-hmm. Right. You, just, you just I don't know. I mean I'm not saying it can't happen, but I would definitely think that this individual would have ha- had to have had access either through a friend, um, husband mm-hmm. or wife, or some way to get this. I do know that people are very our law enforcement is very protective of their gear. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's something to keep in mind. Did this individual, did they work law enforcement? Because security guards have totally different uniforms mm-hmm. than, than police. It'll say security. Right, right. That makes sense. And so, yeah. So th- th- those are some things that really have to be, you know, kind of, you know, it doesn't mean they couldn't have access, but how do they get access to it? You mm-hmm. know? Right, right. And, you know, it just it's an odd way to dress up to go do something. You know, it seems like that would have to be top of mind. You know, for me, if I had to sneak in somewhere, dressing up in full police tactical gear would probably be way at the bottom of the list, you know. Right. It, it really would be. And I've, I've done I've gone to a lot of uh, church break ins because uh, I'm from Utah. And there's a lot of churches here and um, there is I've gone in and I really I've been into a lot that they've, they've broken mostly broken windows to get in. That's how they've gotten in. And um I haven't really noticed a lot. I mean, there, you know, there's things that were more destroyed than there were stolen. And so the destruction was a big thing, but this person, I don't know what they were looking for. And I, and I keep thinking, I, I, if they, if they were that familiar, they wouldn't have to go looking around. And I, and I almost got the feeling because they're, they're well prepared. They got, you know, like a, what looked like a hammer in their hand and they had something to pry open uh, try to pry open the door or the lock. And so there's something definite they have in mind, but that kind of sh- throws you off because I, 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 they, they were there, what, just shortly before Missy got there. Right. So, yeah. yeah so I don't when, think they were that familiar. When, when you're looking at this video, do you see somebody who Missy came in and scared them? Like she interrupted something they were doing and they weren't waiting for her, but they killed her because they were scared. I, I kind of feel that a little bit because, you know, what are you going to do? You know, you're, you're going to be afraid and they, you know, they certainly, but I, but the thing that bothers me on that is the biggest thing you could be scared of is I broke into a church. Right. Right. And it was four in the morning. It just seems, I mean, you know, I've, uh, we've, we've kind of debated this over the years with different people, especially our listeners. Um, a lot of us just see it one way and some of us see it the other. It's just hard for right. some of us to wrap our heads around. Why would someone be dressed like that in a church alone in the middle of the right. night? 
in the pouring rain if they weren't waiting for her. But then again, people are crazy. So we do respect that opinion as well because this person just might not be all there upstairs. And they had in their minds, it made sense to be in the church for no good reason in the middle of the night. Exactly. And if you look at how they're walking and they're going door to door, if you ever watched uh, police tactical things that they do, you know, they go into room, check it out, you know, and it's almost like, as I'm watching, they're like, you know, like clearing a house only they're, they're, (laughs) it's kind of weird watching how they're doing this, but we can speculate all we want. The, The bottom line is who is it? So you, you have to have some sort of lead of who this would be. And, and so what's happening right now is we're, you know, we're all guessing at who it could be, who it might be or whatever. Uh, one of the major questions is male or female. So on this, any evidence, I, I don't know what the police have collected. I have no idea. But the first thing you'd want to do is if there was anything left behind, anything, you want to have that uh, test with DNA with the right technology. And I say that because it's very important. Uh, swabbing the traditional methods are, are not going to get in into the areas that need to be gotten into. And I'm talking about small areas, nooks and crannies. Uh, for example, um, some, you know, sometimes, you know, you'll think, oh, I, I, there's nothing I can get from, from this, you know, because we swabbed it and there was nothing on it. But let, uh, let's see, the, I don't know if it was a hammer or a pick. I, it was hard to tell when I was looking at that video, but it almost looked like a pick type hammer to me, a smaller one. And I don't know if if that was the type it was because it was, you know, wasn't up close and personal, but I would think that they would swab the handle because if if she was bludgeoned, say, with the hammer, then you're going to have a lot of her DNA on the hammer head. Mm-hmm. But on the hammer handle, depending on what that's made of, um, you swabbing it may not if it's say say if it's a if the lower part is wood or if it has a rubber a lot of hammers will have a, it's like a plastic or a rubber coating around mm-hmm. it with little holes in it or ridges in it or whatever swabbing cannot get into that area and so you have to have another way of retrieving any DNA that is embedded in those areas uh, from you know extracting it out of there and the DNA when I say DNA I want to make this clear. What I do is I extract the skin cells because DNA is inside those skin cells. Our skin cells protect our DNA. And so what we, what I do is I try to extract at your, as the skin cells from it. And skin cells are tiny and they're not these smooth little discs that just, you know, slip in and slip out. They're, you know, they're really jaggedy and, you know, they can go in and they can attach and you have to loosen them up and you have to pull them out. So the, the methods that I use, it, it, uh, it does use a sterile solution to start loosening it up. And it does use a suction to pull it out. Wow, that's awesome. And so so that's, that's really important. And in wood, say if it was wood, um, you know, um, sometimes they'll have the, the shellac on it and everything. But if you look at it really closely, you can see that there might be uh, some sort of ridge or something in it. And so you'd want to try to do that. But, you know, um, they I, I would bet you money that any evidence that was done was swabbed. And I don't know, you know, as far as uh, I don't know if there's any because um, it seems like they had gloves on. The suspect had gloves. And so I don't know if any of those were left behind. And if that were, I mean, that would be a treasure trove of DNA right. um, if anything was left behind. I highly doubt it though, because 
I do know that gloves are, at least if this person had law enforcement experience or not, uh, or they have any knowledge, they, they, they keep them close to them. They keep them in their pockets. But um, these, these are things, if I knew what evidence they had, it would be so wonderful because um, it can be, I, I, it, can, it would be well worth their time, you know, to, to use the best technologies you know, to, to get that DNA off of whatever they have. Absolutely. You have DNA, obviously, because they have a, they have a, um, a part, what is it? A mixed um, and partial is the way they described yeah, it. Mixed. So what they're saying is a partial, a partial, believe it or not, a partial profile nowadays, if you had a suspect, you can take a partial profile if it's unmixed. Okay. Cause then remember, I told you mixtures were an issue back then. So I think you can unmix. And we don't know if that partial profile would be the, the biggest profile off of one individual out of that DNA. And you can take that and do a comparable profile, which could give you comparison DNA that could be compared to anyone, you know, to a suspect and, and you know, see if it matches or not. A CODIS profile and a partial profile, a major profile or minor profile are, are, are different. I mean, because in order to have a CODIS profile, you have to have enough DNA to enter it into the CODIS DNA database. And that is a database that holds the DNA of criminals and offenders. And so it would be searched. Um, the CODIS database is made up of, of three levels. A lot of people think it's just one big database, but there is three levels to it. The first is the national level, which is run by the FBI, and that's run all the time, over and over. The next level is run by your state, and your state is the one that will run that one. And the last level is your local, and any law enforcement agency can have a, a local DNA database and team up with other law enforcement agencies, but it's quite a bit of work, and you have to have the equipment and uh, I think that's offered. I, I, I'm sure there are other places, but I do know that True Allele, that's uh, what they use for unmixing un mixtures through Celebrite, uh, works with law enforcement agencies to set up their own. So there's three databases. I would think that, like I say, the national databases should run by the FBI. You have to have X amount of DNA in order to put it in. There are rules, and the same with the state. The state will make up, you know, they, they handle theirs and their policy and everything. So that those are the three things that go into the database. So if you don't have a whole profile and only a partial, then it would be good if you had a suspect or you had some idea and you could start matching it to see if they're part of that. The biggest thing on this would be, is it male or female? Is this person male or female? So whatever evidence they have is going to let you know uh, um, the possibility of it being male or female because a female uh, has two X chromosomes and a male has an X and a Y and they get the Y through their patriarchal lines, through their father, grandfather. And so when they do the DNA um, testing, they see how much male is in there and it, and it might have both, but we don't know, but it'd be a good way to find out. I did a case where, where they had a piece of evidence and we found out it was a female. And, it, and we knew there was so many people involved and uh, only one female. So that was really a good lead. Wow, that's so great. So those are, those are things that you have to keep in mind. So with it being seven years ago, there is hope that there has been, just in the past, since 2016, there have been advances in DNA testing. Oh, absolutely. That's in amazing. Fact, that's great. We've, it, we've it, had so many people ask that question. That's great to hear. <laughs> Well, not only can you do DNA, do DNA testing, you can do it again and you can retest because 
like I said, swabbing, think about how deep that can go. Right. And, and, and with the new technologies and, and, the, and the DNA test, it, testing is, is much more robust than it used to be back then. I mean, it, it, gets, it does so much better. I mean, it's phenomenal how much better it can do. That is awesome. It's so good to hear because, you know, we've always wondered if it was just a lost cause at this point. Um, I have a question about the touch DNA. So when a person has on gloves, is it that their sweat goes through the glove and they're able to test it that way? Or is it because they touch the glove before they put it on and that's where they get it? Or is it either or? It's both. So for example, let's think when you wear a glove, Mm -hmm. Um, you're going to, you know, you're going to leave a lot of skin seals inside that glove, right? Right. Because you're pulling it on, you're pulling it off and you sweat mm-hmm. and, and sweat's great. You know, you can leave some skin cells in there along with your sweat. And then what do you do when you take the glove off? Well, most of the time we'll put it in a pocket that you've probably reached in several times prior to putting the gloves in. You probably reached in to put your car keys in, get money out, whatever. And you're leaving skin cells in those seams, in the pockets. And those skin cells are being distributed uh, and can be distributed on the glove you put in the pocket. And that's called secondary transfer. So that could be they have the glove on, then they put it in their pocket and it collects the skin cells from in your pocket. So yeah, absolutely. And then what about, okay, so you know where the perpetrator is walking down the hall and they're kind of uh, touching the wall, like they're trying to steady themselves or whatever, or maybe they're just doing that out of habit. I don't know, but nevertheless, they're touching the wall. Is it possible for DNA to transfer from the glove to the wall or from the outside of the glove to the wall or both, I guess? I would say it's possible. It would probably be a a little bit difficult, but yes, it is possible. Um, Remember that DNA works better on porous surfaces and smooth smooth surfaces. So it depends on where they, how that wall was. Uh, I've gotten stuff off of walls, you know, and from from touching, but that wasn't with a glove on, that was with um, bare hands and and they touched it, but but it could, It, it definitely could. I mean, we're losing skin cells every day Right. And and just depending on if if they were touching it and how much it was on there and what the, the surface was, because you can't really tell on the video what it was. But yeah, there's a I'm not gonna say there isn't a possibility. It probably wouldn't be my my number one yeah. thing to go to because I think there there would probably be you know other things to go to. And and then, you know, door handles in the church, how many people touch those? So that would be certainly probably worth swabbing, but I've done bank robberies. I've done all sorts of door handle stuff and you do get a lot of mixtures. So um, some mixtures work up to maybe four or five mixtures. Some can work up to maybe I'd say six to, and I think true allele can work up to 10 or 15. So, you know, some are different and it just depends on what your, your lab's using. Well, you know, police, um, uh, I guess uh, at some point had talked to the media and they had um, talked about tools being left behind. They didn't specify what tools were left behind, but as you can see the the perpetrators walking around at different points, you see them with a hammer and then you see them with a flashlight and then you see them with something else. So there's possibly several different tools that they had that possibly have DNA on them all of them i would well, assume, absolutely you know absolutely well think about this why did they why did they leave leave tools behind i, I guess they that. didn't want to get caught with them that is weird though i don't know well no you you you'd probably take them and toss them if you well, were in your yeah. right mind. yeah right so i'm thinking there must have been some I, I don't know where they were left behind if they were you know where 
but they might have been, they've probably heard somebody, you know, heard something, heard her coming in or whatever. And I don't know, or they were scared and they dumped some of those and, and ran and dropped them. You know, that would be really important to know is to the intent, you know, because most, mostly if, if they're that care, careful to dress that way to go in, I would think they'd be that careful in bringing out what they took in. Right. Right. I think that somebody had, I don't know where I had heard this. Do you remember that? That they come from the church, maybe? We've heard different things. Yeah. I, I would have thought that the PERP brought those tools with them, but we have heard some reports say that the PERP picks up some of those tools in the church after arriving, which to me seems really strange. Um, well, the, the thing that doesn't seem strange about that, though, is <clears throat> I don't know any law enforcement agencies that walk around with a, it looked like a pick hammer to me. Right, if you look at it, right. it kind of looks like a, and I don't know anybody. And so certainly discussing with uh, whoever handles maintenance of the church, you know, they would be able to probably identify or get the church people together and say, who does this belong to? Oh, good point. And you want to do some ans- asking about who, when I used to do a vehicle, um, you know, recovery of a stolen vehicle. Um, we'd wait for the owner to come to the vehicle before I touched anything because I wanted to know what belonged to them and what didn't belong to them. Oh, that's wanna... good. And so that's kind of the situation with this church, what belonged to the church and what didn't belong to the church. Right. Yeah. That'd be I'm so excited to hear that it's possible to, to do some more, uh, hopefully extracting of this DNA or, or testing, I guess you should, should say, uh, because it just felt like a lost cause at this point, you know, after seven and a half years. Oh, no. Well, like I said, with the MVAC, now the MVAC uh, does really well. Say they have things with um, that are larger, uh, whether it was cloth, um, fabric, uh, even rock, even rock. Oh, nice. Yeah, even rock. In, in fact, uh, if you go on the WEM, MVAC website, they have, they have a list of all the cases they've solved, it's been off of baseball bats, it's been stuff that's been in water, it's been rocks, it's been tape, it's been so many things that the MBAC has been used on. And it gets, it, it's been um, uh, researched by the FBI. And that's pretty good when the FBI gives you a thumbs up here. Right. And it, it gets 12% more DNA than other methods. Wow, that, that's, that's awesome. actually so that, a lot, yeah. That is, that, that really is, I mean, it, it is. And so what that does is it's like a little carpet cleaner, a little nozzle, and it sprays a sterile solution onto the item of evidence. And then you just suck up and you let it that soak in and get those, you know, cells kind of loosened up. And then it sucks it up into a sterile bottle. And then we're able to take those skin cells that are in that in that solution that was sucked up and pour it through a, a specific a filter that has is the pores on that filter are small enough that it will capture the skin cells, but let the solution run through. Wow. That's so scientific. <laughs> well, and it, well, it, what that means is when those skin cells are caught on that filter, then that filter can dry and I can send it for DNA testing to any lab. Oh, <laughs> you know, okay. I don't have to hurry and, and oh, get it there because I broke open the skin cells and the DNA is floating around or whatever. No, it's stuck on the, stuck on the filter and I can take that filter and I can send it uh, to a lab for DNA testing and analysis. Cause I do not do DNA testing and analysis, but I work with a very good lab that does this excellent job and i and the reason i'm saying this i use a lot i've used a lot of labs and i've talked to a lot of law enforcement agencies that have used labs and i'm telling you this one lab that i use it is amazing because they get they get such 
let me put it this way. <clears throat> I've sent to other labs and let's say, for example, um, on one shell casing, I got enough DNA. You can compare it to the suspect. Oh. On three shell casings, I got a CODIS profile. You never hear of that. You never hear of that. And so they, they're able to do such minute. They do such a great job. <laughs> they don't awesome. hurry through it. <clears throat> they don't hurry through it. They're not inundated, so they can't give the time it needs, and they do a really good job. And the MVAC's the same way. Um, I've worked many cases with the uh, MVAC that have been tested and retested several times before I ever got them. And when I say several times, I mean several times. And um, I, I think Forensic Files 2 just recently, it was it was two, yeah. And they just recently did their fourth season, and it goes into detail. This was for... Um, uh, a state agency here, and <clears throat> it uh, had been tested three times, and and um, it was the same item, but I used the MVAC on it, and we got we got the suspect. Well, we That's know who awesome. the suspect. Yeah. So how so does they, they can't give it up? It, 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 there is hope. It, it you can resurrect these cases. That's awesome. Is it okay? So how does this work if somebody? wanted to do that i mean obviously they they have to send in the item whatever it is that has the dna on it they have to send it in and then they test it from there well the first thing i do is i i talk to them about their case mm -hmm. i i i like to see the 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 case and and the lab work that's been done so we we sit down and we have a meeting and it, it's pretty long i i consult with them on it and i because i have a crime scene uh investigation experience and DNA experience, I know when I look at those photos at the crime scene, what I'm going to go for. I know how a person's positioned. I know what's laying around, what's going to give you the best results. And we sit down and we talk about the case and we go, and I go over everything. And then I get back with them and then we go over, you know, what I believe is the most probative. And I talk to them because we're a team. Yeah. It's not just me. Right. I like to get their input. Why? What do you think is the most probative piece of evidence? And we'll go from one to however many items of evidence they have. And we'll start off by deciding what is the most important piece of evidence you have. And we'll, we'll, we'll do maybe the first two important pieces that they have to see what we get on them. If we don't get anything on them, then we'll work our way down. You don't want to do all of the items of evidence at once. You probably want to do three or four. And sometimes they'll have, you know, 10 or something. And that can be very expensive. And and I, I do want I do want to make it very clear that law enforcement, for the most part, work really hard on their cases and cold cases. Mm -hmm. And law enforcement, for some reason, and I know this is what I thought before I got involved with law enforcement. You know, they they need they're not doing their job. They're not you know they're, they they need to get this done. They, they they do work as hard as they can, but they only have so much funding. They don't have all the money. And most of the time, the state labs do not have the technologies. I'm not saying none of them do, but most of them don't have the latest technologies, you know, to solve a case. And private labs, you know, that's what they do. They have those technologies. And, and there's private labs that have technologies for different types of evidence. Uh, there's one lab that uh, can get... Uh, mitochondrial, which is mother's DNA, off of a hair. How many old cases do you have that have a hair with no root? Because if it doesn't have a root, they say, oh, we can't get DNA. And the root would offer the CODIS profile. But you can't get that, you know, off of a, just a hair shaft. And there's one that does that, just wow. works on that. Oh, and there's nice. one that works on bones. There's just different labs. And, and, and law enforcement, they don't know what's out there. But these are expensive measures sometimes mm -hmm. to get these things can be very expensive. And sometimes there's grants 
And, uh, but honestly, you know, it's very expensive to, to do things through a private lab. So you want to be picky on how you're going to go about it and have the knowledge. And that's what I try to do. Cause it's not just, you have to go with me. It's that, Hey, you know, I know somebody that could probably do this a lot better and has this technology. And, you know, I like to, that's why, you know, I like to refer them to if, if I can't help them, you know, I'll refer them to who can. And so we talk about that and then we decide what, what items would be the best and who it should go to and what should be done with it. And, and my, my goal is to literally help law enforcement and educate them and let them know what's out there to help them so they're not spinning their wheels and wow. doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Right. Different result. That's so amazing. I would give anything if um, we could get this done on the Missy Beavers case. Right. Definitely. Uh, I really think there's a lot of hope in this. I I just, I like I say, obviously, you know, something was left behind. I don't know what it was. Right. Um, but when I get when I can when I go over the evidence, I can get close up photos of it. I can I'll make the determination of what would be the best um, and what would not be the best. And you know that's what you have to do. You have to be very picky in your evidence, and it, because it is expensive, and you want to try to do the the get the the biggest bang for that money that's difficult to come by to do these cases. The other thing I want to bring up, um, it, I, I really think it's so important to really know these technologies because if a case sits too long and I, I, I think it, I think it's really, that's why we have so many, I think we have over 260,000 unsolved homicides in the United States. And, and that doesn't include missing persons. And we know that there are some missing persons that are part of that figure, you know, that should be part of that figure. So how do we do these? Well, after a case gets so long, you know what happens? Evidence gets, you know, destroyed or compromised. Uh, witnesses die, uh, law enforcement's retired, they die. All the people that had the passion for the case and knew about it uh, aren't there any longer. And it's just something that I'm not saying they don't care, but when you got skin in the game on something, you really care a lot more. And so, um, and the fact that uh, episode on Forensic Files 2, the agent that worked the case on that, he never gave up. And this was, I think, a, uh, was it a 19, I think it's a 1998 case, I believe. And he never gave up. And had he given up and didn't have the passion for it anymore, it would never have been solved. And so, you know, having people, I mean, this is a great case because there's a lot of people that went out that have part of this, that are really still excited about, you know, this case and have passion for it. So I say, yeah, you know, start looking for those technologies, start, start getting something done on it because it's not that they are not doing a good job and it's not that they're not trying. It's that they, they probably don't know what's available to help them. Right. We agree with you. And you tell me, where do police go to find that out? Where, who tells them? Tell me who tells them. Well, sometimes you'll go to conferences and sometimes you'll see it and hear about it. But, you know, usually you, you rely on your state lab to know all this stuff, but you know, sometimes they just don't have that technology. And so I don't know if they're going to talk about it or not. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, it's Amazing. I'm so encouraged after talking to you. I know. I know. I'm <laughs> so, so excited. I'm hoping that something that can be done quickly because it would be wonderful to solve this case for her. Well, that's, yeah, you say quickly and that that's, well. that's where the frustration comes in because everybody <laughs> sits on pins and needles waiting for results. And so it has been my experience and some, I'm saying some state labs are great. Some, some are, I'm not saying they're all bad, but some don't have the technologies or they have low staff. They don't have the people they need because we, they, the, they're funded 
for the most part through their state legislature. And as the state legislative person or people that make the decision of what are we going to, you know, allow them to buy and have and use. And I, I tell you, if somebody in the legislature had had a Missy case a family member, they'd be pushing for it. But until you're in those shoes, you don't know how hard that is. Yes. And and I'm not saying they don't do it, but they they have to go, there has to be, you know, things that are determined for the state, what's more important, just like you have to decide the best evidence, you got to decide what's best to put your money on. And so, you know, um, they, they, they have a low, when they, you send something into the state lab, it, uh, and I don't know that it's changed immensely or not. When I was working, it was taken up to two years to get DNA test results. Now I think it's a matter of maybe six months to a year to get DNA test results. The nice thing about private labs is I know the one I work with and what I do, uh, we have 30 business day turnaround. Wow. So it takes, you know, I try to get it done within the 30 days when I get it. And then I immediately send it to the uh, private lab and they have a uh, 30 business day turnaround as well. So the total would, it, it usually doesn't take that long for me because if there's, if it, if it's something that, you know, there's, there's a lot hanging on it and stuff will move it a little faster, but total would be 60 days at max. And that's good because uh, recently there's a case out of Texas, a missing person who's been missing since 2017. Um, his body was found and they had to do DNA testing. And of course, his body was um, decomposing, of course, or decomposed. Yeah. And that took around, I want to say six months, seven months, uh-huh. something like that. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, and, 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 and in, in, um, you know, just talking about the lab, I just want to say, you know, the one thing about them is they have lots of cases to do. So they're inundated. Mm-hmm. Right. They they have to do, you know, the whole state, you know. Yeah, uh, that's a lot. And so, you know, they are truly inundated and, and they have to, and they have to, you know, I, I know that sometimes, you know, we, when I worked for law enforcement, you know, I think, okay, this is a really great piece of evidence. And then you you have to, we'd have to on homicides, we'd have to sit down with the lab people and kind of, you know, decide what items of evidence, because they can't do every item that you collected. And, you know, I think they can, our, I think our lab did at that time up to seven. So you have to make sure which the most probative. And that's why I have that discussion, because I like to know from law enforcement why they think that is and we need to you know you know kind of discuss that and and see you know what is so that the time is well used and your efforts are well used and so i can see with when a, a state lab is inundated um they can only do what they can do and they have to move through these cases because there's so many cases there are so many i mean really it, you know i have to you know with credit to them they their plates are truly full I can only imagine. I mean, it, you know, basically putting it out there like that, it makes sense that there's so many and it's one, you know, kind of like one place handling it all type thing. Well, it is. I, I mean, I, I, I know how they run. I've, I've, I've participated with them in, 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 uh, in serology department. And I, I, I know they work very hard in a, and I know, and, and the one thing that's, that's really interesting that we should kind of keep in mind too is, Law enforcement does this, and the labs are very careful about this, but say the law enforcement goes out to a crime scene and they swab for DNA. What happens with that swab is you have to save half for defense. You have half for prosecution, mm. half for defense. So did you 
rotate that swab really well when you were collecting? Did you do it evenly? Around? Yeah. You know, so when you cut it in half, God, you hope you have the right half. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh wow! So there's a lot. There's a lot to to be considered, and how much work goes into things, and how difficult it is to, to to. I mean, just to do little things. So, uh, what I what I look at myself, I I have crime scene experience, and I have forensic experience. I have the both, and the two make a great marriage because I can take them both, and I try to talk the language, uh, so police can understand what a re what the report says or what they have. Oftentimes, if you get a report that says, oh, you know, make sure it's inconclusive, okay, what does that mean? Oh, case is cold, there's nothing we can do about it, so they put it on a back shelf. That's not what that means. When you look back at their re the, the lab reports, which I can do, and I look at the evidence and I look at the things, then I can say, you know what? This is what I would do if I were you because you could do this and possibly get some good DNA. And so it doesn't mean it's dead in the water. It means you can move ahead. Right. Okay. That makes sense. What about, you said you, you have a crime scene experience. What about whenever they're working the crime scene, um, do they have some kind of a tool or something where they're able to look for like loose hairs that are on the floor? And then I can only imagine how hard it is to determine it could have been anybody's, but how does that work? Well, you know, you got to remember that, um, according to Locard's theory, he, you know, anybody that enters leaves a piece of them behind, skin or whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, they they can vacuum, you know, and and I have done yeah. I have done stuff where they vacuumed and we found stuff, but that's very difficult, and that's very time consuming. And so, what you're going to look for, the first thing you're going to look for is, you go to a so you're talking about a murder. You're looking at the body. You're looking how the body's positioned, how the clothing is positioned, you know, because, you know, with the MVAC, if if the body, I saw a body and I could see there's been a struggle and the shirt is torn, say, for example, I'm going to focus on that area because I know that shirt got torn during a struggle, right? And so I, I, and I'll notice, oh, you know, it looks like um, his pockets were breached. He, you know, they're, they're missing their keys or whatever. I'm going to do the pockets. So this is why, you know, you take the two together. But when it comes to picking up skin cells and hairs now, but what I do and what most places do is they'll look for that trace evidence on the item of evidence when you receive it. So say, say, and I'm telling you, this has been the same on cold cases. There are many cold cases I've gotten where there is still, I could get, I've gotten hairs that did not belong to the victim. Right. Okay. And so sometimes those are overlooked or missed. And that's why sometimes it's good to have two eyes on something, you know, different eyes on something because you might pick up something. And so, no, they're not going to go vacuuming the whole floor. And if you've seen some of the houses that I've gone into and they and other officers have gone into, there's no way you could. Yeah, that's true. So you want you want to focus on where the body is and the evidence is and the scene, you know, so you, you have if you know anything about crime scene. Um, they have what's called the hot spot. That's like where the body is. And you're going to, you know, really that's going to be the area where there's going to be a lot of the stuff you're going to be needing. And then you have kind of a, a warm spot. And that's where there's some peripheral evidence, maybe uh, shoe, tire impressions, things like that, leaving the scene. And then you have the cold spot and that's where you, you put on your gear, or you keep your gear, your, you know, the, that you need and stuff. So, you know, it, it, the hot spot is what you're really going to be looking at. Okay. That makes sense. That does, uh, that does help. I was imagining yeah. looking throughout the whole church. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know. Well, yeah. And, and, you know, I'm sure there's more footage there because I don't know, unless they just look 
unless they were just looking in that area, but that doesn't make sense to me because it didn't appear they knew, you know, where they were looking, you know, what, what they were looking for, what area was it a big room was it a small room, right. you know, I don't think they have it. So I don't know. I, I know our churches are pretty, you know, there's a lot of hallways and stuff in them. So I don't know, you know, exactly, but I would really want to find out if it's male or female. And, you know, and then that could start narrowing down your pool. And another thing that's really interesting, and this usually can only be a single source, meaning only one DNA profile, but you can, it would be great if there was enough where you could do a, a genealogical uh, profile and put it in the genealogical DNA database, you know, to, to find out if it matched anything. Right. That'd be awesome. Yeah, that you would know, be but, great. But okay. usually just so law enforcement, everybody knows, um, it for basically i'll just keep it very simple you need a single source you can't have a bunch of mixtures on there oh for the for the genealogical yeah oh, okay mm -hmm. yeah that makes sense yeah so once yeah. you get it once you get the testing done where you're separating them then can you use that for that no you can't because it's oh. two different yeah so so the dna that we use for law enforcement in the codis database although it's from, it's from the same DNA, it uses what is called loci, uh, loci meaning, and please call it markers sometimes, but that is the part on the, the, the DNA strand uh, or the location on the, D loci meaning location on the DNA strand that we will use to enter the profile. That's what we need to ID the person. On genealogical end, they don't use loci, they use what's called SNPs. And that has to be a totally different type of, of testing. Oh, okay. So you can't, you can't reformat. You can't do that. Okay. Well, that, that, that's helpful. <laughs> I think I have. You know, because some people say, oh, can't you do that? And, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a common question. And SNPs, just so you know the difference, I think, and this is what next generation sequencing is going to be doing because that's where DNA is going. And they're going to be using SNPs, which is used in genealogical databases. And the thing about SNPs is it gives you more information than what we currently have with the regular DNA we're putting into CODIS. SNPs are used to, uh, if you hear of phenotyping, that's where they'll tell you what color hair, what color of eyes, what color of skin on a percentage basis that the suspect would be. And uh, Parabon does that. And um, it's also, um, can get, it can get more specific when it comes to, so, you know, like, what is there, what, what uh, is there ethnicity, you know, and you can, there's so many different things. Like if you had, if you had, um, and DNA can tell you this, uh, you had somebody who has like uh, a, uh, an Asian person, a black person, a white person or whatever, and you could, you, you have all these, these possibles and you were to do that, you could narrow down your, your search by finding out, by finding out, you know, what is their uh, ethnicity? What is, where do they come from? Are they, you know, are they, are they mostly black? Are they mostly Caucasian? Are they um, uh, Asian? What are they? And you can narrow the, your, your suspect base down. That's great. I love that they have all these different types. I didn't realize there were so many. Um, we've learned so much on this episode. Our listeners are going to love this too. Um, I, I think I just have one final question. Something right. that's sort of been puzzling all of us following this case who don't have this type of background and don't have any knowledge about DNA. When the police said that we have a mixed and partial sample that's not usable, what do they mean by 
Because we've always just tossed that around. Can you break it down just in simple terms? What does mixed mean? What does partial mean? Because apparently that's what they're calling this sample. Right. So let's start with the mix. So remember I told you what they do for DNA is they check for the location on the DNA strand that has to be used. And they call it markers or location. It's called loci for location. And that is, you have to have for a DNA database to be entered, I think you have to have 20 of those markers or locations in order to enter it into the database. Locations means this is that part on the DNA strand that we are going to use to identify. Well, within each one of, the, in each one of those 20 locations, say, there has to be what is called alleles. So you have your location and inside that location is called alleles. You get one from mom and you get one from dad. That's your, that's your, who you are. And so those alleles, if you have more than two in each marker, we know there's a mixture. Mm. So if you have three or four and sometimes you'll have five or six because you have mixtures. And so you can look at that and say, you know, this isn't a single source. We got a lot of mixtures in here. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. Thank you. Okay. That, that explains that really well. Right. And then when they say partial profile, that means they got some DNA, you know, it's a, it's a partial sample, but it's not enough. It could only be, say, let, um, it could maybe be three alleles, but it's not enough to make a comparison. It's not three alleles. Okay. Remember that's the alleles are in the location. And that marker, that's where the alleles are set are housed in that area. And there's just not enough to move forward with it because you can't do it. Labs have, they have a threshold. And if you can't get past that threshold, you're, they can't call it. Okay. But let's recap on this one part. That's something that you can work with. Are you asking Ready? me? Oh, yeah. are you asking me on the mixture? Yeah, thing? I'm sorry. absolutely yeah okay yeah well i i do believe so absolutely i would i would i would say yes but i would like to know what they got it from Mm -hmm. i would like to look at the substrate that is it is i'd like to know if it's a hammer i've done i have done knives that they've swabbed and they didn't get anything and and they'll those knives have these grooves in them where you cannot you cannot possibly get on the handle, mm-hmm. you know, of course they're going to swab the, the blade and yeah, the blade's got the suspect sometimes it'll, or the victim blood, but sometimes a suspect, if it doesn't, if it doesn't have a good guard on it, they could cut themselves on this, but probably eight out of 10 times the suspect has a guard on it. It's not going to happen. So you're going to f- focus on the handle. If the handle's wood, it has those grows. It, it has the, the wood grain in it and it's got those little screws in it and it's got the little edge where the, the, the knife folds into and all this stuff. There's all these areas where the, the suspect DNA could be in there, but swabbing can't get into it. Wow. And I think the same with a hammer. I think the same with any tools there might've been or any, anything, clothing, anything. And, and one thing that I say, rock, there is a case um, on the MVAC side called the Crystal Blasanovich case. And it was a very old cold case and she was bludgeoned with a granite rock in the head. And it, the medical examiner way back then, all they did was fingerprints, but he said, you should, because you can't get fingerprints off the rock. They couldn't get DNA. How can you swab DNA out of those little, you know, things? And so he said, oh, you should collect that. And so the, the, um, the agency did, and you got to look that case up. I, I can't remember how it was a 96, maybe case all these years later, the MVAC was used and it could suck out 
that's how old that DNA was. And it could suck that DNA out and they caught the person because that of that. That's amazing. It really is. I and they it. have no idea. I've gotten DNA off of tape, tape that has been tried and tried and tried and tried. And I've gotten it. And I, I kind of have to figure out how am I going to do this? Because if it's too sticky and I can't you know, use the suction on it because it'll stick, I have to think, oh, I, I'm going to I'm going to try this instead of just putting it. I'll freeze the tape and then I'll do it, you right. know. So there's a lot of thought process that has to go with the MBAC, you know, and, and it's just, it's just exciting when you're able to help. And, and people say to me, how many cases have you solved? Well, you know what? My job isn't to solve the case. My job is to get the DNA. It's mm -hmm. up to law enforcement to solve the case. Right. And, and when we work together, you know, as a team, um, like I said, if you, if you were to, it, you know, if you were to look at that forensic files too, that was such a team effort because it was interesting. And I'll tell you one of the most interesting parts on that, that episode, there was a woman, I had no idea about this. I didn't know this until I watched it. There was a woman, she was a stay at home person. And she just, one day she thought, oh, she looked at, uh, I think it was a website called Web Sleuths. Yeah. And, and she was looking at it on this case specifically and she became interested and she started doing some, you know, matching up. Well, what she figured out was so, you know, that that the they had a picture of Lena Geddes, uh, her face. She was dead and they were able to, you know, show her face. And 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 they have, you know, on NamUs they have uh, or missing persons, they have, you know, birthmarks, you know, things that are identifiers, hair color, things like that. And they and and what it had on NamUs and this dead body, they they matched. So she called the police and said, look, I found this out. And they took it seriously. And she was right. Wow. It's just that person was sitting there that you would never know. The son one day sat down and said, oh, this looks interesting. And so she became a very vital part of that. That's amazing. That is and, awesome. and, then, and then from her, it went to, to someone else. And then it went to me. And then it went to somebody else. It was a team effort. I, I, I can never take credit for solving a case because it's not one person that does it. And yeah. even on this case, uh, the state lab, uh, the, the woman I know who is a good friend of mine, she worked for a long time on this case. And it's when we did fingerprints and there wasn't DNA. And, you know, and everybody wants to know what happened to that case I worked on. What happened to that? You know, did it ever get solved? So there's a lot of people. It's a team effort. And that's what our law enforcement has to start looking at. You can't solve cases within your four walls. You need to reach out because there's so many new technologies. You need to reach out and work as a team. And that's what the Cold Case Foundation does is it kind of brings a team together that they can talk to. I couldn't well, agree that's, more. That's amazing. Thank you so mm -hmm. much. Oh, you're Francis, welcome. Francis Bordel, thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to talk to us here at yeah, True Crime welcome. Broads. And we know our listeners are going to love this episode. And um, hopefully we'll get to talk to you again soon. And we just can't thank you enough. And we'll send you a copy yeah. of the show when we get it published. All right. Okay. Good. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Have a great day. Thank you. Bye -bye. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Man, that was a great episode, wasn't it, Renee? Yeah, it was really great to hear somebody explain a lot of the things that we've had questions about over the years. And it sucks to say years, but it's true. <laughs> Seven it and a half years, years, and we're still going, what? I mean, it was good for somebody to explain it. And for her to be able to, you know, she created, you know, the Bardell method and explaining all that. I mean, that was great. And y'all, it's about 100 degrees in our um, studio. I think the <laughs> AC must have gone out and I'm delirious and I really think I called her by the wrong name when we said goodbye to her on the episode. So 
Francine, I'm sorry about that. I'm delirious. My face is red as a tomato. It's so hot in here. And she's <laughs> we're not, got two fans on her over here. I've got two and fans and I'm still struggling. <laughs> I, yeah, the AC's out though, by the way. When I walked down the hall is earlier, it? it's cool out now. So it's this part of the building. Uh, They're okay. going to have to fix that if we're coming back here. Right. We'll have to check on that next yeah, time we so, schedule. So yeah, I just wanted to say that um, Francine Bardol knows her stuff and that was such a good episode and it was so encouraging to hear that she could do something more than likely she could get something out of the sample that they already have so we're gonna have to make sure that they know about that put them in touch somehow and Ooh, get that would this be nice. process moving yeah it's gonna be great yeah I, I that would be a dream come true i hate to even entertain it because i'm gonna get my hopes up but um okay well everybody we hope everyone's having a great week and we're so excited that you joined us one more time on true crime broads and we hope to talk to you again soon Let's go, huh, huh, yeah, let's go, where you from, what? my foot's cramping, I mean, yeah, let's go, huh, ooh, ice up on my neck, let it shine, let it shine, yeah, she gon' hit my line, I decline, I decline, yeah, shine be the best, I'm the fine, I'm the fine, yeah, count all these racks, make me time, make me time, yeah, she gon' hit my phone, where you from, where you at, though, if you laughing at me, then just get up on my feet, though, all my diamonds shining like you never seen a boy, no, ask me how I got it, I'ma tell you, got it so low, Let it shine, let it shine, yeah She gon' hit my line, I decline, I decline